Let's take a minute and pray before we step into studying. Heavenly Father, we ask that you'd be in the midst of our study right now. We're going to look at things written thousands of years ago that apply not only to today, but to the future. So we ask that you would guide us and give us the power of your Holy Spirit to be able to discern things that would not be known without the power of your Spirit working within us. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of being here and being able to look in your word in free circumstances. God, we ask this thing in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I take um, the, the admonition and the ability to build into people really seriously. So when as a church, we take the opportunity to have um, young couples up here with their children and have them say, we want to stand before the Lord and, and dedicate our children and I give them the admonition to raise their children in the nurture and the understanding of God, that means helping to educate them in the things that God wants us to know about his word. I take the word of God so seriously in the ability to teach each week. I personally spend between 25 and 30 hours a week preparing in the way of studying to teach what I deliver on Sundays. And of course, it goes back weeks and weeks before that getting ready for something like this. So last week when I said to the individuals that were here, hey, next week I'm going to be teaching on the battle of Armageddon and the end of the world. Make sure you invite your friends. I had people say, no way. (laughs) I'm not inviting my friends to come hear that. I'll invite them to New Hope, but I'm not about Armageddon. One guy got up and said, put his finger right on my chest and said, there is no way I'm inviting my unsaved friends to come and hear that stuff. It just is too scary. Everybody has a reaction to Armageddon. You think of Bruce Willis flying a space shuttle to an asteroid, don't you? Because you think of the movie and he's exploding an asteroid trying to save planet Earth. A lot of people have different thoughts run through their mind when they think of Armageddon. And so the Washington Post, one of the nation's leading newspapers, decided to pose a question to people. They took a a response of the readers and said, if we give you certain words... We would like you to submit definitions for these certain words. And they chose five or six top words in the English language. One of the words they chose was the word Armageddon, asking their readers to send back to them their definition for the word Armageddon. I'd love you to see the response of one individual when he tried to define the word Armageddon. you see it up on the screen. Armageddon. It's like when everybody is like sending off these really bad vibes, right? And then like the earth explodes and it's like a totally serious bummer. (laughs) I have never heard Armageddon defined that way, okay? It's a totally serious bummer. I will agree with the last couple words. It is a totally serious bummer. You're going to see why today as we get into the text and we begin studying what Scripture says about Armageddon. What do you think of when you hear the word Armageddon? The disciples of Jesus were really interested in this particular subject. So there's one particular day when Jesus is walking out of the temple and they called his attention to the buildings. They said, Jesus, do you notice all these buildings Because the temple was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. I mean, it was just spectacular to look upon. We're talking about the Jewish temple in Israel. So Jesus is walking out of this great piece of architecture. 
And the disciples said this to him. Look with me up on the screen. Matthew 24, 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Now, we understand that what Jesus was talking about specifically right there, he was talking about in 70 AD when the Romans would sweep in and wipe out, obliterate the nation of Israel, absolutely remove them from the face of the earth. And the nation of Israel at that moment went out of existence. The Jews were dispersed all over the world. Rome conquered Israel. And the Roman soldiers went into Jerusalem and literally took apart the temple block by block, piece by piece. Historical evidence of it. So what Jesus was talking about in that phrase was that the temple would be destroyed. That's why he said, not one stone will be left upon the other which will not be torn down. So after they leave this setting, Jesus walks with them to their favorite park, Just picture whatever park you like to go and hang out. Jesus went to this place called the Olive Garden, all right? That's that's the (laughs) phrase that comes to mind. It's the Mount of Olives, okay? He's got this this garden, and they're not eating Italian food, but um, the Mount of Olives is his favorite place to go with his disciples. And so they go hang out on this Olive Garden area, and they come up to him and ask him a question because they're really curious about this end times thing. So this is what it says in verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? See, everybody wants to know, even the disciples. They wanted to know, what's it going to look like? And you notice that they didn't say prove it. They didn't say prove it to us. What they said was, tell us how. How is this going to happen? And when will it be? The very tranquil setting that they were in, in this garden setting, to ask such a serious question. And Jesus' response to them, you can read it later today yourself. Go to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24, later today, and read what he said about the end times. What they were so interested in is this. Everything that he talked about was indicating that the temples that they thought were so great the livelihoods that they made were of absolutely no consequence. In the long-term scheme of things, what man has built, what man has accomplished, means nothing. Jesus said, it's all going to be destroyed. So what he was driving at was much, much larger, much, much bigger than just talking about man's edifices. Last week, we discovered that the last judgments that God's going to carry out on planet Earth are carried out in a form of seven bowls of wrath, B-O-W-L-S. The first judgments we looked at were the seal judgments in the beginning of Revelation. Later on, we looked at the trumpet judgments, and now the bowl judgments, three sets of seven judgments, 21 of them. Today, we're in the last two, the last two that destroy the planet. Look with me up on the screen. This sets the framework for it. Revelation 15, 7. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So the final act of history has begun here. Three weeks ago, we looked at the glory of God in these bowl judgments. Last week, the righteousness of God. Today, we're going to look at the wrath of God. 
Throughout human history, God has poured out his wrath upon the earth. God's wrath is a constant theme throughout the Old Testament. Prophets referred to it all the time. The day coming in the future, the last day of God's wrath, is called the great and terrible day of the wrath of God. That's the way Scripture refers to it. So there's three forms of wrath specifically in Scripture. There's disciplinary wrath, there's cataclysmic wrath, and there's eternal wrath. So when you think of disciplinary wrath, think about the time when God carried out judgment on planet Earth when Adam and Eve committed the first sin. God judged the planet and cursed it, saying that from this time on, man will toil upon the face of the earth. And everything changed. That was disciplinary wrath. Move forward a few hundred years, and the time of Noah, when there was great, wretched sin upon the earth, and God brought about cataclysmic wrath when he destroyed the earth with a flood. So that's the first two forms of wrath, disciplinary and cataclysmic. And then there's the eternal wrath. Today, we're going to be looking at the cataclysmic wrath, the one that reshapes the planet, that destroys things. So let me help you with first framing this with two words that Scripture uses when it uses the word wrath. First one you'll see on the screen is the word thumos. Look at the definition for it. It's a Greek word. It means passion, as if breathing hard, fierceness, indignation, rage, or passionate anger. You ever been around someone who is so angry that their nostrils actually flare in and out? That's passionate rage. We're not talking about WWW, big-time wrestling, guys faking it. We're talking about actual fierce rage. The flaring of the nostrils, that's what thumos is. The second word that's used is orge. Properly, violent passion, justifiable abhorrence, The implications are that there's punishment associated with it. Indignation and vengeance. So when you see in Scripture the phrases, fierce wrath, you're thinking thumos orge. The combination of the two make up the wrath of God. Thumos orge. Now very interestingly, throughout history in Scripture, when you see God's wrath, you see a very interesting paradox the wrath of God being carried out, and at the same time, God busily working to try and rescue people from his wrath, his righteousness and his justice working side by side. He wants to carry out wrath because of sin, but he wants to save because of his mercy and grace. And so it's a very interesting paradox as you move through Scripture. So far, the judgments that we've seen, we would say, are extraordinary and bizarre. What you're going to see today are intense judgments, and they are absolutely horrifying. So let's move forward into the text. We're looking at Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12. It's going to be up on the screen as well as in the Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. If you're here for the first time in New Hope, you may not know there's Bibles there in the pew racks, and if you don't own a Bible, those are there for you also to take with you when you leave today. We really want you to have a copy of God's Word. So you can take one of those, and you'll have God's Word in your home as well. Now remember, the seal judgments that we looked at earlier destroyed one quarter of the earth, moving into the trumpet judgments, one third of the earth, and now these bowl judgments affect the entire planet. Okay, here we go with verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. So unlike the previous bowl judgments, 
There's no specific assault on humankind. This particular bowl that the angel dumps out with God's wrath is being dumped out on a river, the great river Euphrates. So it's preparation for what's to come. Instead of dumping it out on man himself, he dumps it out on a part of creation, one of the rivers that God created, the great river Euphrates. Think back to the time of the Garden of Eden. God said there were several rivers that surrounded the Garden of Eden. The Euphrates and the Tigris were two of those. The great Euphrates still exists today, a historical, geographical location on planet Earth, the great river Euphrates. 2,000 years ago, John, sitting on an island, out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, this island called Patmos, in a prison, writes down what God tells him about the river Euphrates. And this is what he writes, what you just read, that God's going to dry up this great river. I'm sure that just shocked John because the great river Euphrates, to everybody in the Middle East, knows it is the most significant river in the Middle East, even today. It has its origins in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, at the base of the mountains of Ararat. Mount Ararat is not one mountain. It's a chain of mountains. So the mountain chain of Ararat, when the snow melts and the ice melts and comes pouring down from those mountains, they feed right into this river Euphrates, which flows 1,800 miles, and it dumps into the Persian Gulf, the area where many of our aircraft carriers are at today when they roam across the ocean. Our naval ships sail through the Persian Gulf. The great river Euphrates dumps into this. This great river is also the eastern boundary of the land that God promised to Israel. During the time of Solomon's reign, Israel saw that their boundary went that far, but not since then. So this great river Euphrates has always been a dividing line in the Middle East. And Scripture says that its waters are going to dry up. It's not because God's showing kindness to the kings of the East. It's so that he can prepare things for what's about to come. So in your Bible, when it says, in order that, the kings of the East, this phrase, in order that, in the original means to give them access, to give the nations of the East, and we're talking China, India, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Japan, in order to give the nations of the East access to the Middle East by drying up this great barrier called the River Euphrates. Now, think of this. What God says he will do, he will do. He's described this in the book of Isaiah. Look with me up on the screen. This is written way before John, Isaiah 46, 8. Remember this and be assured, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Pay attention to this phrase. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Do you think God means business? He's saying over and over again, bird of prey is a biblical description of a military force. And he's saying, I'm calling a military force from the east and they're going to come in and they're going to accomplish my purpose. So let me say it again. The nations of China, India, 
Pakistan, Afghanistan. Those are what Scripture refers to when it's talking about nations of the East. I'm going to help you understand a word that's really important to this text. It's a Greek word, and it's a word, anatole. Look with me up on the screen and see the definition for it. Anatole means day spring, a rising of light, dawn, by implication, the east, day spring rising. So literally, when Scripture says it's preparing the way for the kings from the east, this is what it's saying, the kings of the rising of the sun. So when individuals in the Bible would think of east, they would say, Anatole, the rising of the sun from the east. Okay, that's a Greek word. Here's what's really important about that. Starting in the 1980s, Turkey, a Muslim country, Muslim government, decided to start a series of projects of hydroelectric dams, building them on the Euphrates River. First one was completed in 1991. 22 dams have been built since 1988 when they started the project on the Euphrates River because Turkey controls a great deal of the Euphrates River. Let me show you an image up on the screen of the first in the series of the dams. Very big, isn't it? It's actually caused a series of lakes. They've taken the water from the Euphrates River and channeled it off into opposite directions from the river so that they can feed their cotton fields so that they can feed their cornfields, and so they can create electricity. Now, with these 22 dams, as they move forward in time, they have caused a drying up of the river Euphrates. By the time you get to Baghdad, it is a shallow shell of its former self. Years ago, in the 1960s, the river Euphrates was 1,300 feet wide and 30 feet deep, impassable even to advanced military forces, it would take a long time to get military men across the bridges that spanned the river Euphrates. Today, it is a trickle of its former self. In 2013, the last dam is scheduled to be finished. Let me tell you what they named the series of dams. Mind you, a Turkish government called it the Anatole Project. A Greek name meaning the rising of the sun. Now, how in the world a Muslim government arrived on using a Greek name from Scripture, calling it the Anatole Project? You can Google it yourself and look at it later today. A-N-A-T-O-L-E. It's fascinating research to study it. Now, I want to be very clear about this. Your God does not need a series of dams to stop the water, okay? He can absolutely channel it and divert it, do whatever he wants to with it. He created earth. But that this is happening in our lifetime is very fascinating to say that when you go to Bloomberg News Report, New York Times, Wall Street, you look at all the modern-day publications and put in the search program, the River Euphrates, the same headline comes up. Why is the River Euphrates drying up? And why in the world did they call it Anatole? I have no idea. Okay, let's move forward to the verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Whatever the human motives are for this invasion force, 
for whatever reason, all the military strengths begins moving towards the Middle East, we discover here that the real reason behind it is very evident. There's three unclean spirits that are motivating this. Why out of the mouth? Why is John seeing this image of something coming out of the mouth of the one known as 666, the Antichrist, an unclean spirit coming out of the mouth of the one called the prophet and the one called the dragon. Because out of the mouth is the source of influence. They are politicians. They lead the world. And so John is saying, I see these unclean spirits controlling the world through what they say. But why frogs? I mean, that's like, Totally gross. It's like something out of a horror movie. You're seeing frogs coming out of somebody's mouth. Well, for the Jews, a frog was a detestable thing. It's something they absolutely did not want to associate with. As a matter of fact, if you go back to Levitical law, you'll find that God commanded that the people of Israel, his chosen people, have nothing to do with eating creatures like that. Look with me up on the screen, Leviticus 11.10. Whatever is in the seas and in the rivers that does not have fins and scales among all the teeming life of the water and among all the living creatures that are in the water, they are detestable things to you, and they shall be abhorrent to you. You may not eat of their flesh. So what John is seeing is not literal frogs. He's seeing demons. This is three spirits of demons. That's the way the text says it. So they're making a proclamation with their voice as politicians leading the world, commanding the kings of the nations to gather in the Middle East for this great war. So kings from all over the world gather in this area that we call Israel today to go to battle to conduct this war. That's specifically why they're gathering together. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why in the world do you never hear the question asked, The last battle, Armageddon, that's going to be in Alaska. No one ever says, the last battle, that's going to be in Costa Rica. No one ever thinks that way, do they? Why in the world, in the Middle East, in this tiny little piece of land, did God choose to do this? Because 2,000 years ago, he said the last battle is going to take place in this area called the Plain of Megiddo. Now, let me put you in perspective with what we're talking about for landmass. Look with me up on the screen at this chart. It will show you specifically how much land Israel actually has. You got that one, Brendan? There we go. Look at the very top, and you see Russia as the country in the world with the largest amount of landmass per square kilometer. 1,700,000,000 square kilometers make up Russia. Go on down the list, you find the United States, 9 million square kilometers. Look who's number 153 at the very bottom of the list. Israel, 20,000 square kilometers, a tiny, tiny little country. It's smaller than Haiti. It's smaller than Cuba. You can fit Israel into Florida eight times. So we're talking about a very small piece of land that God chooses to bring the nations together to do battle. Look with me up on the screen at Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says this, Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Because of the demonic influence, 
working through the Antichrist, the nations of the world are going to bring their armies together and they're going to carry out a war like no other war that has ever happened on planet Earth. This is the war of the great day of God. Move forward with me into verse 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. It's almost like in a parenthetical statement, Jesus says, time out. I want to remind you of something. I am coming. Do you see those first words? I would circle that in your Bible. Behold, I am coming. And when I come, I'm coming like a thief. Quick. And no one's expecting it. And then he gives us this little explanation here that blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes. What in the world is that? Jesus is giving comfort to those who are followers of his. And here's, this is a military explanation. What he's saying is the soldier who keeps his clothes on, who stays on duty, who's watching and carrying out his responsibilities, he's the one that's going to be prepared. So he's saying, don't be afraid. I never forget my own. I am coming. And by the way, blessed is the one who's watching for me, who stays awake. He's describing those who are prepared for his arrival. So these who are waiting for Jesus are blessed according to Scripture. So now we move into the last couple verses and it moves very quickly and it begins talking about Armageddon. Verse 16, And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. The voice of the beast, the voice of the dragon, the voice of the prophet, speaking to the leaders of the world, saying, Come for a military battle to the nation of Israel. And that's why it says in verse 16, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Look at the definition up on the screen for Har-Mageddon. It's merely a Hebrew expression. We've translated it into English, the word Armageddon. Literally, the Valley of Megiddo, a real geographical place here on planet Earth. You can see the picture on the screen. It's a valley, and it's such a large valley that it literally can contain millions of soldiers. You see the mountain in the very background? Napoleon Bonaparte stood on that mountain and said, certainly this is the most natural battlefield of the whole planet Earth because of the staging areas in which you can place military troops. The plain of Megiddo is 60 miles north of Jerusalem. Now clearly it appears from what Scripture shows that the war, the battle of Armageddon will wage and rage up and down the countryside for 200 miles, all the way down to the region known as Basra. So when you look at this map and you see Megiddo in the very center, you're looking at northern Israel. And this war will move throughout the nation of Israel, covering the entire countryside. When you think of the Old Testament, you think of Gideon having his battle. When he fought the Midianites, it was in that valley there have been 200 major military conflicts in the valley of Armageddon over the centuries. It is a natural staging area. And apparently, this staging area is going to be used to set up the nations of the world for their military battle. Joel wrote about this, the prophet Joel, 800 years before John. Look at me up on the screen, Joel 3.14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision, meaning the valley of Megiddo. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. 
The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. Because I know what's coming, I want to say, cool. Because when you see the next verses and you understand that the earth is about to be shaken, you understand what Joel is writing about, and the heavens and the earth tremble. Because all these military forces come together, it's the first part of the bowl being poured out. And as the bowl is poured out, the nations cross the Euphrates River. They come into the Middle East by whatever means they need to use, train, plane, automobile, and they arrive, these military forces, and they wage war with God. Look with me on the screen, Revelation 17, 14. These will wage war against the Lamb, meaning Jesus, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Chapter 19 gives a graphic description of the battle. I'm going to give you just a piece of it today because we're going to look at it later on. But here in chapter 19, you see what John saw when he looked at the preparation for the war. Up on the screen, Revelation 19.11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a white robe and blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, stop right there. Think about the juxtaposition. Armies in heaven, military strength in heaven, and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean. When have you ever seen a military assembly of men clothed in white linen? This means that they're following the lead warrior, Jesus, and they are not going to have to fight. Jesus carries out the fight. They are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and they were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. You need to know this. This is not a battle. This is a slaughter. For the armies that enter into this valley, they're going to war against God. And you can read it later today yourself. Go to Revelation chapter 19, and you will read about the birds of the air picking the flesh off the bodies for months afterwards. It is a very graphic description of what Scripture says will happen to those who wage war against God. This is actually a slaughter, and Jesus leads the battle. It's a conquering by Jesus himself. So it begins to wrap up now with the cataclysmic judgment upon planet Earth. This is what people think of when they think of Armageddon. Verse 17, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Now I'd want to step back and say, What is done? I mean, we're just getting going here. What is done? This is the final judgment that's being carried out. So when you think of Jesus on the cross, the very last words that Jesus said, arms are stretched out wide, 
And he cries out, it is finished. Exact same phrase that's used here. The word is genomahi. Look at the definition up on the screen. To cause, to be, or generate, to become into being, be brought to pass. Okay, moms here, when you cook dinner for your family, you get dinner completely prepared, and you call the family together to eat. You say, dinner's ready, or supper's done, meaning you're done cooking, but it's not really done, is it? You've got the eating, then you've got the cleaning, and the washing of dishes, Jinomahi means something has been set in motion that has continuing consequences into the future. So when Jesus said, it is finished, it meant that what he came to do was finished with continuing consequences into the future. Same phrase used here. It is done. Same words Jesus used because God's actions at Calvary when he pronounced judgment upon sin, was just the beginning, wasn't it? It was the beginning of the redemption process. God said, it's done, I'm buying them back, and so it had continuing effects into eternity. So that's why verse 18 wraps it up and picks it up this way. Last few verses here. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city, meaning Jerusalem, was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Now step back with me to the moment when Jesus was crucified. It is Finished. Sky grows black. The thunder begins. A great earthquake, Scripture says. God judging sin. Move forward to what you learned in the beginning part of Revelation. The seal judgments. How did John start off the seventh seal? And I saw flashes of lightning and peals of thunder and a great earthquake. How did John start the seventh trumpet judgment? And I saw flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. And now, with the seventh bowl, in the same form, God has poured out his final judgment. Not judgment upon sin, but the wrath of God upon planet Earth. The earlier storms were only a preview to this storm of wrath, which is now bursting upon the Earth. And John said, an earthquake like has never happened before. A great earthquake. Now, we've looked at the word great throughout the study of Revelation over the last couple months. Anybody here remember the word great in Greek? Megas. Megas. Huge. So John is saying, there's a megas seismos where we get seismographic from. A megas seismos. A great shaking of the earth. I'm going to put a map up on the screen for you so that you are refreshed with what we talked about a few months ago when we think about earthquakes. What you're seeing is a display of earthquake activity over planet Earth since 1963 to 1998, a 35-year measure of time, 358,000 earthquakes, an event registering between 2.5 with no upper limit. 
has been calculated by seismologists. What I'd like you to pay special attention to is where the fault lines lay. Starting up in Alaska, moving from the North Pole all the way down through Chile, through Argentina to the very bottom of South America, one major fault line. Moving from Iceland all the way down to Antarctica, another major fault line. Moving from Iceland all the way down through Europe, look at the activity around the Middle East. Moving all the way through Africa down towards Australia. Branching out over towards India, moving down towards Australia again, and then starting up in Japan and Russia and moving all the way down through what's called the Pacific Rim of Fire. Seismic activity is greatly increasing on planet Earth. 358,000 events in 35 years. In the 1800s, all they know that was recorded were somewhere around 2,500 events. If you move back to the 1700s, the best records indicate there were somewhere around 1,500 earthquakes. 358,000 earthquakes in 35 years. Obviously, we have much more sensitive equipment and we're able to measure things today more accurately. But let's just think back through history. In the recent years, what we've had. 1961, the great Chilean earthquake, 9.4 on the Richter scale. One of the most powerful earthquakes known to man. 1961, Prince William Sound, Alaska, 9.7 on the Richter scale. 2004, the Indian Ocean. You all remember that because it happened around Christmas Day. Hundreds of thousands of people dying. That one was 9.1. Now, when you think of the Richter scale, you have to think exponentially in terms of the numbers, how they graduate. We saw in Haiti this year 7.1 on the Richter scale, and two weeks later we saw in Chile 7.4. Moving from 7.1 to 7.4 is exponential shaking of the earth. 7.1 to 7.2 means a 32 times movement in the Richter scale, meaning that the one that took place in Chile after the one that took place in Haiti was 96 times stronger than the one that took place in Haiti. 32 times every time it's duplicated. So geologists are measuring this and saying, A Richter scale measurement of 10.0 has never been measured on the face of the earth. A 10.0 Richter scale earthquake is the equivalent of one teraton of dynamite. I have no idea what that is. It's just big. When we move up to 12.0, seismologists and geologists say that that is equal to one day's energy output from our planet the sun. A 12.0 will literally crumble the earth, shaking it to its very core. When you see the fault lines and where they lay, you begin to understand why John wrote what he did when Jesus said, the great shaking that takes place to reshape planet earth in the last days will be the final judgment because it will be a reshaping of the entire planet. This is what one geologist wrote, Dr. Henry Morris, who is a believer in God, a studier of the Word of God, and a theologian who has gone on to be with God years ago, but this is what he recorded about this great shaking. The gentle rolling topography of the world as originally created will be restored. No more will there be great, inaccessible, uninhabitable mountain ranges or deserts or ice caps. The physical environment of the millennium will be, in large measure, a restoration of the antediluvian pre-flood environment. 
So this is why it moves into verse 20 the way it does. Look with me on the screen. This is the last two verses. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. What's happening here? Islands are merely mountains in the ocean, the tops of mountains. My text says that the mountains are shaken to such a degree that what was happening with seismic plate activity with the mountain ranges growing is now shaken to a point where the mountains collapse. Mountains in the sea, mountains on the earth. Do you notice that every single judgment that we've looked at throughout the last seven have been an attack upon the earth, upon the sea, upon the waters, upon the sun, and the air? What we're seeing here, I believe, is a reversal of the curse of creation. When God pronounced his first judgment against earth and said, men will from this point on toil and sin took over the earth and the mountains begin to climb, we know that the Rocky Mountains still are climbing today as the seismic activity takes place. With this last judgment, God is shaking the earth to such a degree that he's restoring it to the pre-flood conditions. Now think about this in very graphic terms. No more Hawaii. No more Paris. No New York City. No Beijing. No Moscow. The text says the nations of the earth, the cities of the great nations, collapse. As the global flood back in the time of Noah produced catastrophic events reshaping the earth because of the judgment God brought upon it, so this one at the same time. That's why through the book of Revelation, you've been seeing things like the atmosphere breaking apart and asteroids hitting the earth, constantly peppering the planet. I know this is a degree of speculation, but it appears that what's taking place here is God reshaping the planet for the millennial kingdom for the return of the king, bringing it back to its original order. I believe what you're finding in Revelation is at first a destruction of the planet, a taking apart of the superstructure in order to bring it back to the original shape that it was. Look with me up on the screen at this last verse, Haggai 2.6. This is written by a prophet 800 years before John. For thus says the Lord of hosts, remember that means the God of the military. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I shook it in the beginning when I cursed the earth, and I'm going to shake it again. And apparently there's people who somehow escape the hailstones and people who escape the earthquake, and somehow they survive to the end. And do you notice what they're doing? In spite of everything they've seen, they're still blaspheming God. That's how the verse ends. Men blasphemed God because the judgment was very severe. You talk about hard hearts like Pharaoh. We many times believe, man, if God would just bring about a sign, if he would just do something here on planet Earth, people would believe in him. Well, the text argues differently. My text shows that even with these signs, people still will not turn back to God. So this is where planet Earth is headed. And here's a truth. 
No one can prevent it. Bruce Willis cannot jump on a space shuttle and fly out into space and stop an asteroid. It's not going to happen. There are no superheroes, but we can escape it. Scripture says that this is what God will do when he pours out his cataclysmic wrath. But he provided a way of escape. Remember what I said earlier? He carries out his judgment. You've got a juxtaposition. He's also carrying out his rescue at the same time. God of righteousness, God of mercy. So this is why he had Paul write down what he did when he wrote to the Thessalonian church. Look with me on the screen. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 Wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from what church? From the wrath to come. See, the people of Scripture understood that God's wrath is coming. It's acceptable that God has wrath. It's just, how do we respond to that wrath? That's what we're left with this morning. So I'm going to ask you to stand right now. I'm going to ask you to think through these couple things. If we know that his disciplinary wrath corrected things and was bringing people back into order, like with Adam and Eve trying to get their attention, if we know that his cataclysmic wrath is to bring things back to his possession, like planet Earth, we also understand that his eternal wrath has not happened yet. And his eternal wrath is sending individuals who reject Jesus Christ to eternity in hell. That's what the Word of God says. So those who choose to reject what's written in the Bible are rejecting what God spelled out for us well in advance, saying, here's the way it's going to break down. Here's what you can expect, and here's your way to escape. Proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ as your King and Savior. That's what he tells us. So disciplinary wrath, cataclysmic wrath, and eternal wrath. Aren't you glad you came to New Hope today? It's really bright and cheery, isn't it? But it's a promise, church. Everything God said he would do, he would do. He has never lied to us. He said it, he will do it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would instill these truths in our heart to the degree that if we're not in a positional relationship with you, that you would cause individuals to be restless until they confront this issue. And those of us, Father, who name the name of Christ, who belong to you, God, use this to instill in our hearts the great need we have to proclaim the return of the King and that there is a way of salvation. Father, thank you for these truths and for having John write them down for us so many years ago that we can still look at them today. We ask, God, that you would bless this week as we take it on. Help us to use it for your glory and your honor and for the advancement of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.